Thank you for joining us on our sixth episode of our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid, where we talk to researchers previously funded by Australian Rotary Health about their research findings. I'm Jessica Cooper, and today I will be talking to Dr. Lisa Mundy from Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Dr. Mundy received an Australian Rotary Health Mental Health Research Grant in 2015 for her project called Pubertal Risks for Mental Health Disorders. Dr. Lisa Mundy is a team leader and research fellow at the Centre for Adolescent Health based within the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Dr. Mundy is a developmental psychologist with expertise in life course epidemiology. She also has experience in developing strategies for participant and community engagement and translating research outcomes into service delivery improvements. Dr. Mundy's primary research project focus is on understanding the psychological, behavioural and biological underpinnings of mental health problems, with the ultimate goal of developing innovative approaches to prevention and intervention. So it's great to have you on our podcast today, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us. How's everything been going for you lately? Thanks for the opportunity to be here, Jessica. Um, Yeah, it's been going well. I think like most people, there was that initial hump as we all made the transition to working from home and into what this new normal was and Mm. kind of adjusting. But I think, think, um, yeah, since then, things have kind of really settled down and um, we've got somewhat into a a groove of of all working together. Yeah, I think probably the real challenge will be getting back to normal again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I think that I think that kind of adjusting to, to what's next is probably going to be another challenge again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with your research background being in adolescent health, um, I just thought I'd ask if you might have any mental health tips for the teenagers or parents of teenagers who might be listening as we still adjust to the changes brought on by COVID-19. I've seen an article just recently saying that going back to normal can actually make... Um, it can cause anxiety as well. So would you have any comments about that? Um, yeah, no, I think it's a really important point. And as we know, we've been through huge amounts of change in the last couple of months where pretty much everything has changed for our young people um, in terms of you know moving to online learning and disruption to um, sporting events and travel events being cancelled and um, not being able to see friends and extended family. Um, and now, obviously, as these, tra- these tra- um, restrictions are starting to ease, then many families are starting to prepare for um, that transition back to school, um, starting to have increased opportunities to kind of reconnect with friends and family and to begin some sports again. Um, and so as we were saying, it's kind of probably um, sort of we're adjusting back to now we were kind of in a, a pattern of, of sort of almost relative calm and now we're kind of adju- having to readjust to, um, to what is this new normal that we find ourselves in and, and kind of back into an unknown as well. And, and there'll be new rules. It won't simply be a case of being able to slip back to, to how things were before. Um, so I think, you know, some people are, are going to be really, really excited and there's going to be obviously some teenagers and young people who are super excited to be 
actually getting back to school, being able to see their friends again and, and get back to doing some of those activities that they've really missed. But others will have more concerns and, and there'll be some um, young people and, and indeed adults and, and children as well who are, who are somewhere in the middle. And we know that this, um, these kind of periods of change and transition are, are, are kind of a, can be worrying and unsettling time anyway, let alone in the context of, of being in a global pandemic. Mm. Um, but it's likely that um, most students will adapt pretty quickly and will settle into this new normal. So I guess in terms of advice for parents and young people, um, I think, you know, as always, talking with your child or making sure that they have someone that they're able to talk with. Um, when talking with your child, you know, using open-ended questions so that they get a chance to kind of really explore what's happening for them um, and to try and wrap up conversations on a positive note as well. Um, so don't leave things kind of you know, open with a kind of edge of anxiety of, of what's next. Um, provide reassurance I think is really important I guess that's one of the good things about what we're all going through is that everyone is in this together so um, everyone's going through it again um, but that said it's important to listen and acknowledge to um, your child um, or young person's concerns and be aware of changes to their behavior that might signal that they have concerns so things like you know not sleeping or being really worried about going back to school um, I think remembering that it is normal to feel worried and to have a level of anxiety during these times, but there are strategies for managing those um, those times. So things like breathing exercises, doing mindfulness, going for a walk, getting outside, um, you know, healthy eating, those sorts of things. Um, encourage them to talk to other people as well, like their friends. Um, and of course, there's lots of other resources available Um you know, from the kind of BU Raising Children Network, those sorts of resources, um, as well as obviously being able to speak to health professionals or GP if, if you have concerns. Um, I guess some other practical steps are thinking about, um, you know, with the kind of return to school. So thinking about helping um, your child kind of prepare for what that looks like. Um, as we said, it, it's not going to be the same as it was before. So there's likely to be staggered drop-offs and breaks and the need to be a bit more self-sufficient than possibly they were before, not being able to share things and needing to have their water bottles, not being able to use water fountains and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, and I guess the, the final thing as well is probably um, a routine. So so trying to get back into a routine as well I think with this all these changes many of us um, uh, and you know, many families have kind of perhaps slipped into you know perhaps going to bed a bit later waking up a bit later so um, starting to get back into a more regular routine as well will we'll help with some of those changes. Yeah well, well thanks so much for that that's some really good advice and I'm sure that will be really helpful for people. Um, so in, in 2015, um, Australian Rotary Health awarded you with a mental health research grant to see how hormones could predict mental health problems in young people. Um, did you want to tell us a bit about how this study came to be and, and what you hope to get out of it? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, so this project was part of a larger study called the Childhood to Adolescence Transition Study, or the CAT study, um, as we like to call it. And this is a unique study that's been following over 1,200 students through these middle years, so that kind of 8 to 14-year-old period, um, and through this transition from childhood to adolescence. So we used to think that these years were a quiet time where not much was happening. Um, and in fact, 
these years are still kind of typically forgotten in, in research and policy. We tend to focus on the kind of the early years, kind of zero to five or, or at kind of later adolescence when many of these problems um, that we're interested in, like mental health problems, have really emerged. Um, but we now understand that these middle years are actually a really important phase of life um, and they've been described as a sort of developmental switch point. And they're dominated by puberty, um, which happens to us all. Um, and this brings a whole suite of changes across pretty much every area of development from cognitive, social, emotional, um, as well as, of course, the physical changes. Um, there's also a major restructuring of the brain that's happening during this time as well. And, and in fact, infancy is the only... Um, other phase of life where there's as much development happening for an individual. So it's a really kind of transformative phase of life. Um, it also kind of changes the way a, a young person engages with the external world as well. So we know during this time that peers and friendships become really important. Um, and there's a kind of uh, the way that the young person is engaging with their family and, and parents will, will start to be redefined and, and, and kind of new rules, new boundaries are starting to be set. Um, it's also a time where the young person is sort of thinking about where they fit in the world and they're sort of they're becoming more self-aware and, and, and kind of more reflective about their own um, their own development and, and as I say where they sit in the world and, and their own sort of aspirations. So we typically think of puberty as being this kind of unitary event and we kind of typically think of it as happening kind of around 11 to 12 years of age with these physical changes that that we'll, we'll all be so familiar with particularly those of us with um, parents who have got children in this age um, but we know that puberty isn't this kind of one-off event and that actually it's a cascade of hormonal changes that are taking place um, and the earliest of these hormonal events is called adrenarche and that begins around eight years of age and during this time there's this sort of huge rise of these hormones called adrenal androgens um, which start happening and so that's obviously well before those physical changes that we kind of typically study and think about um, when we're thinking about puberty. So in terms of this project, we were really interested in trying to get a better understanding of what's happening in terms of the emergence of mental health problems during this time. So we know that one half of all mental health problems begin by age 14 years of age and that puberty is a kind of transition point where many of these, these disorders really set in. But the sort of earliest symptoms of those mental health problems typically begin before 14 years of age and before those physical changes of puberty. So we wanted to kind of get a better understanding of what was happening across the whole spectrum of puberty and how that was linked with the emergence of these, these mental health problems and those earliest symptoms. So um, to do that, we looked at these, the kind of the levels of these adrenal androgens and how that was linked to later depressive or anxiety symptoms. So we used data as part of the CAT study. So the participants that were taking part in CATs provided three saliva samples um, starting at eight years of age and then um, throughout um, for the next four years. Um, and they've also reported on their symptoms of depression and anxiety. Hmm. Well, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. I mean, you know, it's not something you'd really think of, you know, you know as far back as eight years old, like, you know, things start to change. So, yeah. That's yeah, exactly. I think it can be a bit scary for, for many parents to, to think about that, that it's mm -hmm. that their eight-year-old is starting to have these um, these changes. Yeah. Uh, was this one, of, like, considered maybe a, a world first, like the first kind of study of its kind? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, I know that often um, we kind of like to think that the, 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 
these studies are, but this one really was. Um, and it's certainly the only study in the world that's followed such a large group of, of children from the kind of normal population um, with such detail across these years. So we followed the children and their families every year for eight years. Um, and we've collected a huge amount of data across this time. Um, the big focus on mental health, but also looking at those relationships with peers, families, media use, obviously the role of social media, um, engagement with school, experience of bullying, um, and those sorts of things. Uh, we've also collected information from the teachers of the students as well as the parents and we've managed to do um, data linkage with data sets like NAPLAN as well to get a, a better understanding of their academic performance. But I guess the really unique part of this study is, is those biological samples and, and being able to see what's happening, um, the kind of underlying hormonal changes that are happening through puberty um, as well as the physical changes as well. And so um, during this grant um, in 2015, um, what were your main findings? Yeah, so there's some really important findings that have emerged from this particular project. So we looked at the baseline levels of these hormones. So at eight to nine years of age, um, children who had higher levels of these hormones compared with their peers and their friends. And we found that those children had higher levels of emotional and behavioral problems, even at, as I say, even at eight to nine years of age. Um, we then looked at that, as I say, across um, sort of longitudinally with these multiple samples that we've collected. And we saw that um, children who had higher levels of these hormones across those later years of primary school, so across years five and six, um, that they um, that having higher levels of hormones during those years predicted later depressive and um, depressive symptoms in, in early adolescence. And that effect was stronger for girls than boys, um, which kind of ties into this kind of um, gender difference in, in depression that emerges around this time. Um, we also found that girls and boys who had higher levels of these hormones um, also had greater levels of body dissatisfaction as well during this time. Mm -hmm. So these findings are, are really important in terms of kind of providing a better understanding of, of how we think mental health problems emerge during this time. And they're really important in terms of informing um, how we do sort of preventative interventions and where we should be targeting resources. So really this idea that we need to be targeting resources when these problems are first emerging, when those symptoms are emerging in, in late childhood, rather than waiting for disorders to become established and, and kind of intervening during later adolescence. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, the key findings that we found from this project. Yeah, well, that's that's really a main focus of our mental health research grants. We, we target ages zero to 25 so that we can get in there early and, and look at prevention. And yeah, I think prevention is probably a lot easier than, than curing mental illness. Yeah, that? exactly. <laughs> I, I, I definitely agree. I think that's that's key. And I guess the, the sort of these findings really highlight that, you know, it, it really is when those to be intervening when those symptoms that are first emerging is, is likely to be really most effective. Mm. Uh, yeah, so so going on from that study, um, has it been translated into practice or um, I, I know that you are using the data still, um, you know, for different, you know, finding, like to find different things. Um, anything interesting come up? 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a, a few things. Um, yeah, so we've been continuing this research and sort of, I guess, trying to get a broader understanding of what's happening for young people who have these emerging um, mental health problems and these emerging sort of emotional and behavioural problems that happen during this time and, and trying to understand better how we can support young people and families during this time. So one of the things we've been really interested in is this relationship between sort of mental health, well-being and learning during these kind of late primary schools, so sort of as these symptoms are are emerging um, and so we looked at children who had those um, kind of persistent emotional problems so not a disorder but as we were talking about those kind of higher levels of symptoms during primary school and we found that by the time they got to secondary school they were a year behind their peers um, in terms of uh, their academic performance particularly on on numeracy so obviously that's a huge a huge learning loss at that sort of early stage of of, prime, of um, secondary school to sort of be starting secondary school that far behind and um, they were also more than two times likely to be disengaged from school as well so this really comes back to what we were talking about earlier about this being a really transformative phase of life in terms of understanding where um a young person sort of really working out where they fit and where it makes sense to sort of invest their resources. Um, so we've been thinking about kind of what that means, um, you know, it, more broadly. And I guess the, the really important message is that treating mental health problems during this time is obviously key, not just for their health, but also for their learning as well. So we've been doing some work with the um, Victorian and, and Commonwealth Departments of Education um, around how we can sort of better support students during this time. So things like sort of strengthening the curriculum to be better supporting and developing the social and emotional skills that young people are acquiring during these years, um, supporting and promoting teacher capabilities in this area, um, sort of setting up the school environment so it promotes and supports well-being, um, as well as obviously ensuring that those children who have those really high high symptoms and um, are getting the support that they need and, and kind of being linked in with with services where appropriate as well. Hmm. Yeah, well, it seems to really have some some positive implications for you know for helping children and yeah, it sounds really good. Yeah, we we hope so. There's there's still more to be done, but um, I think it's a, it's an important step in the pathway. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and because, you know, there has been a lot of talk about the impacts of um, COVID-19 and like how it might impact our mental health in the long term, um, because of this, would you say that now would be an especially important time for Rotarians and members of the wider public to donate to mental health research? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as we've all seen in the news, Australia's obviously done relatively well compared with other areas of the world in terms of managing the kind of direct physical health impacts. Um, but we know that there have and there'll be continue to be those economic impacts as well as the social impacts that um, we talked about earlier. And obviously for these young people, they've had huge disruptions um, to their education as well. And we know that all of these things can have big impact um, on the mental health and well-being of our young people. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly you know, a key time in terms of um, providing greater investment into trying to understand what's happening in the sort of the short term, but also the medium and longer term um, so that we can best support these children and young people and their families too as they navigate through these really challenging times. So I know it's a challenging time for lots of people, but I certainly think, yeah, for um, anyone who is able to make a, a donation at this time, it, it's really important um, in terms of trying to provide the best support we can for, for young people during this time. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, um, thanks again, Lisa, for joining us on our podcast episode today. Did, did you have anything that you wanted to add before we, we wrap up? Um, I guess just to say a, a big thank you to Australian Rotary Health um, for supporting this work. It's a, a really underfunded area. And so um, the, the support that you provide is incredibly important and, and really very much appreciated and valued in, in helping um, to to get these findings and, and actually make them available. Um, I'd also like to thank um, all the young people, parents, teachers, schools that have all taken part in CATS and continue to take part in CATS um, because we literally couldn't do this study without them and, and they really do make a big difference to understanding what's happening for young people. So a big thank you to them too. Yeah, well, no worries. If you wanted to <laughs> supply a link at the end, um, yeah, I can put that with this video at the end and um, if you just want to send me an email and okay. I can share that around. But thanks that again. That sounds great. Lovely. Thanks so much, Jessica. Great to be part of it. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the sixth episode of our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid. It's always so inspiring to hear what researchers in Australia are doing to make a difference to mental health and how they are helping us on our mission to lift the lid on mental illness. If you would like to help more mental health research like Dr Mundy's continue, please consider donating to our COVID-19 appeal. We have an aim to raise $200,000 by June 30, so your support would be very much appreciated. Please see the link to donate on our Australian Rotary Health Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.